Welcome to Here We Are, the podcast where we celebrate the beauty of being a nerd by learning about nerdy things from fellow nerds. I'm your host, Joy Blue. I met today's guest while working a show on the road. We had the same flight back home, so we rode to the airport together, had a nice leisurely breakfast, and next thing I know, I'm learning all about one of Chad's passions. I found it utterly fascinating, and I hope you will too. So without further ado, here's Chad Duran to talk with us all about his love of wooden boats. I'm uh, Chad Duran. I'm just a computer graphics nerd that travels for a living and does PowerPoint graphics and presentations for executive meetings, trade shows, conventions. Like a boss. Well, what do you want to nerd out about today? Boats. Yes. A primarily. boat or boats? All boats in general. All boats. Yes. Any boat owner, boat enthusiast likes all boats. Okay. When did your interest in boats start? I guess in the bathtub. <laughs> yeah. Best place. Yes. Any kid that sits in the bathtub with their toys imagines themselves floating in one of the, the toys that they're playing around with. That's so true. Yes. My kids all had little toy boats when they were kids and they always remember them. That's amazing. Yeah. That's where your adventure starts on a small scale and just gets bigger and bigger throughout life. <laughs> your toys get more expensive. That's true. But it's more complex, but your boats. Yep. I tell people I could be in a, I could be in an inner tube on the water and be just as happy as I am in a million dollar yacht because it's water. I think that's what you're drawn to. Do you remember some of your first experiences on the water? Yes. And I would have to say it's probably fishing with my dad and my brother. That's amazing. I have a, an older brother and my father was a firm believer that you shouldn't really own a boat unless you could fish out of it. Interesting. So we always had canoes or metal fishing boats. And yeah. we started small. We rode or we paddled to where we needed to fish. And not until probably when I was in grade school or junior high did I start imagining a boat with a motor because I was a lazy kid. It was a lot of work to paddle yourself across yeah. the lake to catch one fish and then paddle back. And <laughs> you were constantly seeing other boats that were whizzing by with motors. Not quite fair. You were like, why, Dad, why couldn't that be us? When are we going to get a motor on our boat? So, so when did you get a motor on your boat? I would say shortly after that, my dad always had a, a motor boat, a fishing boat or uh, uh, something with an outboard engine on the back of it. And it was used solely for the purpose of fishing. And I loved fishing as a kid. That was probably my first, aside from the bathtub, my next introduction into boating. There was always an attraction to the boats or envy of the boats that were getting to the fishing spot quicker. I grew up on an inland lake, so I saw That's a lot amazing. of boats. But when you get to the age where you're kind of screwing around with your friends, you start looking at boats that are pulling tubes or skiers or uh -huh. something like that. And then your dreaming begins. But it wasn't until I bought my first boat that I buy a boat that was fast enough to ski or tube behind. My father always felt like if you're going to ski or you're going to screw around in a boat, you can do it in somebody else's boat. <laughs> <laughs> For better or worse, Both I guess. Find friends with a boat. And any <laughs> boat owner will tell you it's always better to have a friend with a boat than it yeah. is to own a boat because of the work and the maintenance. But uh, I like that part of it as well. Boats so one not. of the things that intrigued me in our passing conversations on the job was your love of wooden boats specifically. When did you first get your hands on a wooden boat and start playing with that world? So that was in high school. 
And I remember it specifically because my dad bought something that didn't have an outboard motor. You didn't have to pull a cord to start it. You got in and you turn the key like an automobile. Who does that? In fact, my dad bought a 1956 Chris Craft. Uh It was a 22 foot boat. And on our lake that we grew up on, that's a decent sized boat, maybe too big for the lake that I grew up on. Okay. And that's when I learned how to love wooden boats. They're just the sound of them, the smell of them. Mm-hmm. It's like a piece of antique furniture with an engine strapped on it. Mm-hmm. And uh, my mother and my family are heavy into antiques and collectibles. So I grew up around the antiques. And there's just something about the smell of a musty mm-hmm. piece of wood. Yep. Or walking into a barn in the spring and smelling the wood or smelling the gasoline from the engine. Right. And uh, yeah, I just, I was attracted to it. And it was, wood is, it's, is maintenance, it's sanding, it's varnishing, it's staining, it's not unlike a piece of furniture. And because I was already doing that and helping my mother as a kid, trying to like restore furniture, or my mom was always dragging home something she found on the side of the road and we would repaint it or refinish it. So this was kind of the best of both worlds. I had a project to restore, work on, monkey around with, and then put it in the water and enjoy it. Who supported you along that learning journey? Like your parents taught you how to refinish. Yes. I would say my mom was probably the biggest supporter in the sense that she's the one that taught me how to sand and varnish and stain a piece of wood and make it look, you can, you can find a lot of things in the junk or at a, at a flea market or yard yep. sale or at an estate sale. And you can take it home and you can clean it up, put it in your home. She's the one that was kind of like the do-it-yourselfer. My father didn't own a tool except for like a hammer and a button screwdriver. <laughs> the basics. Yeah, the basics. And I was always getting in trouble for not returning them to where the toolbox where he kept everything. But he Oops. was not very handy. My dad could screw in a light bulb and then it ends right there. Well, hey, got really. one thing going for him. Yes. If the toaster was broken, my father was looking for a new toaster and I was looking for the <laughs> screwdriver so I could take it apart or the hammer to bake on it. That's amazing. Yeah. So that started the love of tinkering with things. Why get a new one when you can just fix the one that you've got? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you just like anything else these days, older things were built better. They were built with pride and with a little bit of love and a little bit of maintenance, they would last a long time. You yeah. can go to the store now and buy a toaster and within a couple of years, you need a new one because something that's plastic kind of broke. Right. Totally. Okay. So so backing up a little bit for those of us in the world that might not be boating humans, can you just auditorily describe what a Chris Craft looks like? When you're in one, there's a feeling that you've kind of stepped back in time. And when you're on the lake driving one, you always get the waves, you get the thumbs up, you get the, Hey, I love your boat. I love the way it looks to me. It's, and it's not just the look, they all look great. Anything that's finished to perfection, varnished with a mirror shine or Mm -hmm. chrome that's polished then you can comb your hair in it. It's always attractive, but it's the sound. It's the experience. It's the Mm. fact that you can't just get in it like a car and turn the key. There's a process. You got to pump this, you got to prime this, you got to turn this valve three quarters of this direction. You got to pump the gas. You got to push the yep. button. You got to turn this, turn the key. They all have kind of like a startup sequence. Hmm. And to me, that's just kind of the fun of it. Not everybody can hop in and want to go and knowing how to do something, fly a plane, drive a forklift, anything that's different than just right. getting, you always feel like there's just a little bit more of attachment to it. Well, it's kind of like the analogy you just used of the old toaster. You can go in and look at it and you can do something about it. But the newer stuff, it's not analog anymore. So what I think I'm hearing you say is there's a beauty of the analog of the Chris Craft. Yes, they were not mass produced in any way. Um, 
Are each of them hand-built? They're all hand-built. Most of the wooden boat manufacturers were in the Midwest. Mm -hmm. Chris Craft specifically was in Algonac, which is just south of Detroit. So there were automobiles being built. Model T's and Model A's were rolling off the assembly line, and Henry Ford invented the assembly mm -hmm. line, where the boat or the car traveled through the manufacturing facility, and everybody had one role. You're right. the guy that twists the screws. You're the guy that mounts the board. You're the guy that hammers the nail. And as it comes out the end, you have a completed car. Mm -hmm. And Chris Craft was the first boat manufacturer to adopt Henry Ford's assembly line method of manufacturing. Interesting. So it literally came in on pallets of wood, planks of wood that were hammered to the frame and then finished and fitted with all of the hardware, the engine. Um, stained and then varnished with like three coats of varnish and then they left the factories. So a big day of production back then was four boats rolling off the assembly mm. line in one day. Wow. Uh, you think of automobiles. Now a model of car has hundreds of thousands of just that one model. Yep. It's because hundreds are coming off the assembly line each day. Yep. Back then a big production run on a boat was maybe 1200. Wow. So they're rare. And when you see one, you're just, you're privileged to see something that there are very few of them. Some of them didn't survive. That boat that I was talking about earlier that my, my father bought when I was in high school, we'd enjoyed it for two years. And then it fell into a state of disrepair where my dad trailered across the street and it sat underneath the big plastic blue mm -hmm. tarp for years. And I thought to myself, that's a bit wasteful to enjoy something for a couple of years and then just let it rot. And I wasn't going to let it happen. So I started tinkering with it myself in high school and refinishing it with the intention of getting it back on the water. So whenever you can take something that's broken or in a state of disrepair and put it back into circulation or back into use, it's rewarding. What's that, that process like with a wood boat? Like if it's rotted, that just seems like going into a rabbit hole that you might never come out of. Right. Well, I like the idea that there are projects that can be had on the cheap. My, that boat, my father, I think maybe purchased for $2,500. Mm -hmm. I spent like probably three years of my life restoring it. I brought it to Chicago and kept it on Belmont Harbor, downtown Chicago. But when I was ready to start my freelance business, I sold the boat and I sold it for like 11 grand. So wow. my father spent maybe $2,500 on it originally, but I put three years of blood, sweat and tears into it with very minimal investment on that boat. Everything was there. It just kind of needed what we call in the restoration business, like a mop and glow. It was mm, like, it mm -hmm. needed to be shined up. It needed to be loved. It needed to be painted. Yep. It needed to be recocked. The engine needed some attention to be able to start. Let's break it down real quick. I'm familiar enough with the wood finishing process because I grew up in my dad's wood shop and I have so much respect for the smell of cut wood and all the wood smell things that you said. Right. I'm like, yes, I'm right there oh, with you. Deep. What is the process of starting to strip a boat back to its essence right. and build it back up? I'll use my first personal boat, not the family boat that I used or restored personally, but was my first boat was a gift and it was sold to me for a dollar. The proof mm. of a sale was a dollar agreement and it was a wreck. Uh, the shape was there. The wood was there but it was not going to float. It's oh, wow. original bottom from 1952 was rotten out of it. It was a 1952 sportsman, an 18 foot boat that I still have. And is still the kind of like the, my favorite boat. I bought it for a dollar, but you take the hardware off of it. The Chrome bits, the hardware, the steering gear, the steering wheel, the gauges, yep. the engine, anything that's not wood, you strip off of the boat. 
it gets pushed aside. Parts you, that need to be repainted or polished. You, do you document that somehow? You know, with photographs. Okay. Thousands of photographs. I've never been big on the manuals of disassembling something or even like my computer. Mm -hmm. If I need to upgrade RAM or I need to do something, I'd usually just grab a screwdriver, take it apart, but I mm -hmm. have to take photographs so they know how to put it back together. There's right. nothing worse than putting something back together and finding leftover parts. <laughs> just Oops. <laughs> so you take a picture of it in the form of where it sits. And then as you disassemble it, you're taking pictures of how it goes back together. So wow. when I restored my first boat, I didn't reassemble it for another six years later. And wow. by then you have well, forgotten everything. Yeah. So tons of photographs. You strip the hardware off, you strip the engine out of it, and then you tackle the wood. And if the wood is rotten, meaning that if there's no strength or oils left in the wood, it doesn't make for a very safe boat. And in the world of boat restoration, bottoms, anything that sat below the water line mm -hmm. has a tendency to be dried out and weaker than the rest of the boat because that's where it got most of the abuse. And that's where the water was. Uh, wood is very porous, so it soaks mm -hmm. up water. In the season that it's in the water, it swells. And in the off season, it dries and then it shrinks. Mm -hmm. So it's constantly moving and, yeah. and flowing. And they're really sensitive to, to humidity and moisture. And over the years, too much swelling and shrinking, yep. the wood gets tired, the oils leave the wood, and then you could literally poke your finger through wood. So you go around and you take an ice pick and you tap around the wood to see whether something is soft. And where it's soft, that piece of wood needs to be replaced. So you, they're fastened to the frame of the boat, which are the ribs and the keel. Mm -hmm. Planks are just bent into shape or steam bent into shape and then mm -hmm. screwed to those frames. So you have to pull those fasteners off, the screws off, and size up a new piece of wood, fit it to the boat, fasten it to the boat, and then you move on to the next piece of wood. And on my first boat, the entire bottom was replaced. It was all brand new. And there are some modern techniques that they didn't use originally that life of the boat is really extended. Fascinating. When boats left the factory back in the 50s, I mean, I mean they'd been built since the turn of the century, but mine specifically is a 50s boat, was only guaranteed to last six years. The bottom really? of the boat was intended to be replaced within, you know, after six years of use. Wow. And nowadays, you don't, wouldn't buy a boat if you knew they had to put a new bottom on it in six years. Right. You'd want it to, for the rest of your life for at least 20 or 30 years. So but, how uh, does that play out then if you have old wood next to new wood? Like, does that change the dynamic of it? No. The hardest problem is trying to find, there were certain species of wood used in the 50s, Honduran mahogany and mm -hmm. Philippine mahogany that were used, and there was a shortage of it. They essentially ran out of it in the 60s. We had chopped down all the trees in the rainforest to make boats. Yay. And, Look yes, how yes. that went for us. Yes. It was the war. Okay. Landing craft and PT boats were all made out of wood, and there was mm -hmm. a demand, just like any other, when World War One, there was a demand, a yep. shortage of metal, you know what I mean? In World War Two, it was a shortage of tropical hardwoods, mahoganies that are resistant to rot. So all of the boats that were built with hunter and mahogany. Yeah, so you're using replacement wood, which isn't readily available. There's different species. There's Philippine and African mahogany, and you're laying up newer pieces of mahogany to old and staining them. Mm -hmm. appear like they would have appeared in 1952. Staining is just the color. Yes. And Chris Craft uses a specific color. They call it Chris Craft Red, but there was a number that they gave it. Mm -hmm. And they still manufacture that same color of Chris Craft stain. Varnishers have 
developed over time. They last longer, they're more UV protectant. And that's just to encapsulate the wood in the grain and protect it from the elements. So once you put your raw wood on there, you've stained it, you've matched the rest of the boat, then you go to encapsulating it or protecting that wood underneath of it. So you're eventually making a hard, hard varnish shell. Originally there was only three coats. It just, it looked pretty, but it doesn't have the number of coats of varnish that you see on boats now. And that's just because you don't want to have to put varnish on your boat every year. Right now right. it's like an every three year or every six year type thing. But back then they used it until it fell apart and they hmm. replaced it or they took it, hauled it to the dump and, or to the bonfire. That's really sad. Yeah. So what is varnish made of? They used to be volatile chemicals, but they're oils from exotic hardwoods that are harvested and added to the wood to give it a protective shell. There's artificial ones, the spar varnishes that use, basically they contain sap. Okay. Um, and they harden over time. So you can put coat on coat over the top of them. But there's now newer coatings and varnishes that are polyurethanes. Yep. Or they're epoxies, mm. two-part formulas that harden up where you're putting a hard shell. I prefer you natural varnishes, which are made from natural yeah. extracts of trees. That's so interesting. Yeah. In my head, varnish was more like analogous to like laminating a piece of paper. Right. But I didn't realize it was natural substances. Yes, they were natural substances. It used to be in, in furniture repair shops, a jar that had, they were lacquer. Mm. And lacquer was made from shellac that you added thinners to. But it was like a hard, a hard chunk of like of sap. Mm-hmm. that solvents and thinners were added to it so that you could paint it onto the brush. But Interesting. Old repair shops and antique repair shops always have a jar of this hard ball crystallized sap that they thin to put over wood to protect it. And it's all natural. It's an all natural. Yeah, it is amazing when you think about it. Most, wow. of, the glue, most of the glues and epoxies that are made are extracted from plants. I didn't know uh, that either. There's artificial and then there's glue is made from trees and plants you're blowing my mind right now yeah i mean people had to build things i don't know when the first person to use a tree sap to to build something but it goes back centuries wow saps and oils and shellacs and all sorts of things that's amazing getting back on board a little bit you told me that you have redone two more boats since then i have and each of those Kind of belongs to one of your kids, right? Right. And those are both Chris Craft as well? Yes, they are. Well, no, one of them in the middle was not a Chris Craft. I've done three different materials. My father's boat from high school was a wooden boat restoration. My first one that I did myself was the 1952 Chris Craft. That one was wooden as well. But I did an aluminum boat in between after I finished that one. I thought, oh, I'll never do this again. This was kind of one of those long, painful, wasn't painful for me, but... Over the course of three years, I was dumping money into a project that I didn't know that it was going to be finished. Yeah. And you're kind of throwing money at it until it finally, the problem goes away. You put a, you have a list of items that need to be completed before you can actually go boating in it. And it was, uh, it was a long journey. And I thought, mm-hmm. you know what, I'll take a break from this for a while. But after like two years of not touching anything, I was like, I need another project because I really enjoyed, you know, my weekend and evening hours going out into the garage and working on it. So yeah. I did an aluminum boat, which was probably a little bit easier than the, I did that one in the course of months, not years, a piece of aluminum that got polished to with a mirror shine and an engine attached. And I had fun with that one and nice. I sold that one. 
And then I bought a fiberglass boat uh-huh. from the sixties. And in the mid sixties, Chris Craft had kind of, it was in the process of phasing out of wood and introducing fiberglass, which was already being used by other manufacturers for big cruisers and saltwater boats. Mm-hmm. Um, saltwater is extremely damaging to all boats in general, but specifically wood boats are hard to maintain in a salty environment. Yeah. So I bought uh, a rare boat, a 1969 Chris Craft Commander Supersport. It's a long name, but uh, it was Chris Craft's first recreational speedboat made out of fiberglass. And it was over-engineered. They didn't know the strength of fiberglass at the time. So they made it like three quarters of an inch thick, which was just heavy stuff. It's really heavy stuff. (laughs) And the boat is built like a tank. So they put larger power plants in them because mm-hmm. they needed to move across the water. So they, Chris Craft used to use smaller six cylinder engines and now they started strapping in Chevy small blocks in them with a lot of horsepower so that they would move faster. And nice. it wasn't really just for the need for speed. It was because they were so big and they were so heavy. Yeah. And bulky. And that production run was about 85 or 90 boats. That's I it? One, I have, yes. Yeah. They changed changed the name of it and called it something else in 70. So they only made it for one year. In one year, they made like 90 of them. And then in 1970, they switched the name of the boat and changed a bunch of things about the power plant and the finishing of the interior of the boat. And then they think they made about 3,000 of them. But yes, yes. And that one was my son's boat. Okay. And I always joked with my friends that were like, how does your wife let you spend money on these boats? (laughs) I said, just name them after your kids and then your wife will be on board. Totally on board. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. She doesn't have her boat yet. And I guess I don't really have my boat yet. So there's still room for a couple more. Great. You have a lot of life to live yet. Yes. Your kid needs a boat, right? Well, I didn't have a boat. So did you ever like when you were a kid float a stick down a mud puddle or a drain or something like that and think, well, kind of. Yeah, you had a toy in the bathtub that floated. Yeah. yeah, I mean, we always joked that when my dad got a pickup truck, we're like, "What are you going to get a boat?" Yeah. We're not really water family, right? So yeah, I didn't become a pickup driver until I owned a boat. Because I think I tried to tow my twenty-two foot Chris Craft on the Dan Ryan behind my Isuzu Rodeo, <laughs> and realized that was not a that was not a wise decision. <laughs> so then my brother was like, "You need a truck." There's so many words there. You tried to yes. tow it on one of the busiest highways in Chicago. Yes, highway, on one of the smallest, the... most, the <laughs> weakest powertrains of any SUV on the road at the time. And it's Suzu Rodeo. There's a reason Great. you don't see the Suzu Rodeos on the road anymore. <laughs> it's all well, apart or rusted. Yeah. I'm really glad you made it this far, yes. despite the Su- Suzu Rodeo. Yes. <laughs> I've come a long way since that. Chad, this has been so fun. Thank you for your time and for sharing with us about your love of boats. I learned so much today. Thanks for having me. I had a blast. So here we are. I learned so much in today's interview about boats. Outside of being able to point at one and say, that's a boat, or being able to paddle a canoe or a kayak, I haven't had the chance to learn more about these pieces of art. And I... I'm so grateful to have had the time to do that with Chad. Thank you so much for your time, Chad. If you've got a flavor of nerd that you want me to celebrate, I would love to hear all about it. Go ahead and email me at herewearethepodcast at gmail.com and tell me everything. 
and I really mean it. I love taking time to sit and make space for a nerd to be celebrated. If you really like this podcast and want to financially support what I'm doing, head on over to patreon.com, search for Here We Are The Podcast, and sign up for one of the many, many beautifully written support tiers that I'm really proud of. So until next time, don't forget that curiosity wins and the world needs more nerds. Bye.